I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Know Before, visit knowbefore.com. Roger, another week, another episode. How are you? I'm doing great. Great, great. Well, first topic for us uh, today, Roger, I read a post that you wrote for the Know Before Security Awareness Training blog that's centered around CISA's phishing infographic that they released last week. And the infographic covers you know, data that's collected, lessons learned, and recommendations learned from simulated phishing attacks that CISA has conducted for organizations. And so what I'd love to start off on with you is you know, having you tell us more about this infographic and I guess at risk of sounding like a therapist, how it made you feel. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, I was kind of delighted that CISA released uh, a phishing infographic. Uh, you know, it's really good. It's really well done. A lot of people don't know this, but CISA actually does simulated phishing testing. You know, you can, if you connect with CISA, you've got to fill out a form and it's not automated. You know, it's not like a you go to a screen and fill out a form and it just happens. You actually fill out a form and they email you back and ask for information. And eventually they can do this simulated phishing, but you know, it came up with a lot of good information. They have a larger document that they try to push out to people saying, here's all the things you need to do called the cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals, which is, again, kind of this larger document that just says, hey, this is what you should be doing to try to defeat hackers and malware. So in this case, they took their phishing infographic and information they learned from simulated phishing, and I assume real phishing attacks, and then tied it back to their cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals. And overall, it's a really good document. And I think if you're somebody that's looking for this independent non-vendor attestation about phishing and what you need to do, you know, I think it's a really good start. It's not super detailed, but it really gives you kind of the high level bullets. You know, like one of the key points was, you know, they reported that one out of every 10 people who got a simulated phishing test clicked on the included link or downloaded the attachment. And what's kind of interesting there, I guess, for me is that means 10% of your employees might click on a simulated phishing test. We've been collecting that data for over 10 years, and we see it higher, certainly among the average organization and certainly higher among organizations that don't do security awareness training. Our industry benchmarking, and we've got it kind of by industry, shows that the average company kind of pre-training before anyone's received any security awareness training is somewhere around one third of people will click on any simulated phishing test you send to them. And let me say that seems really high. There are organizations we found that have what we call fish prone rates above 50%. And the lowest we found across every organization across 9.5 million users last year was 20%. So if the lowest rate of an employee in an untrained company clicking on a phishing email is one fifth of your employees, and it can be above one half, but the average is somewhere around a third. Uh, and that's been really consistent every year over the last decade. And our research also shows us that when an organization does sufficient training, and let me say sufficient training isn't once a year, the average organization that does security awareness training does it once a year because it's required because of some, meeting some compliance requirement. 
those organizations fare just as poorly as an organization that did no training. Training once a year is the same as not doing any training. It's like training someone how to drive one day a year or something, you know, when they're new. But, you know, we think that people should train their employees at least once a month. Their cybersecurity training when they get hired should be 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, or whatever it might be. And then every month thereafter, it should be this shorter, focused, you know, couple of minute training that focuses on the most common likely threats that the employee may face. And then once a year thereafter, they get kind of this longer security awareness training, you know, where they get taught, you know, make sure you lock your laptop, you know, make sure, you know, you don't share passwords, that sort of stuff. But it was kind of nice to see that CISA saw the same thing. And again, they saw it at 10%. Although they said 10% of the people they sent the phishing emails clicked on a link or downloaded malware. That doesn't really talk about how many actually opened it up or how many people thought it was real or what percentage of companies they did simulated phishing test in actually had already done training and that sort of stuff. But I would say that easily just know that, you know, somewhere between 10% and up to 50% of your employees We'll click on a phishing email unless you do aggressive training. So that was a really important learning from that, or at least, you know, just kind of reemphasizing. But there were other points that were, to me, kind of more shocking, probably the biggest one. And I think this needs to be investigated more is that CISA reported that 70% of malware or links that pointed to malware were not blocked by the victim's network border protection services. That's pretty huge. That means, you know, the average company's network, if you're putting in firewalls, advanced firewalls, you know, you're putting some type of anti-malware scanning at the network level, intrusion detection at the network level, 70%, most of it, is getting past the network border protection services. That, to me, was probably one of the most shocking points that I personally saw in the CISA infographic. Although it's interesting, they said that only 15%, I guess only, if I can put that in air quotes, only 15% of malware was not blocked by endpoint detection services. So that tells me, and again, this is kind of shocking to me, is that you definitely have to have both types of protection just so that you have defense and death layering but that the endpoint detection products were far more likely to detect the malware or block the links. I mean, that's pretty huge. And maybe the answer there is that people are just deploying more endpoint detection products out there that people are deploying. You know, you're more likely to have antivirus on your system than you are some type of network device. But I think that's interesting is that First of all, the, you know, at least according to the CISA data, the endpoint detection products blocked a lot more malware and links by default, 15% versus 70% uh, got by. But I think also it tells you that 15% of the malware is not being blocked by endpoint detection products. You know, like people always ask me, you know, how good are antivirus or endpoint detection response software? Well, according to CISA, it's averaging around 15% of malware is getting through and not detected, which, you know, you'll always see these, oh, our antivirus is 99% effective or 100% effective. And, you know, I've always poo-pooed those claims of any endpoint product being 100% protective because if that was the case, hackers and malware would not be the problem we have today, right? (laughs) 
you know, it's just like, you know, like if you were a hundred percent effective, you know, even if we only had one product out of the entire ecosystem was a hundred percent effective, everybody would buy that product. And we basically wouldn't have to worry about hackers and malware. So the claim that your antivirus product is a hundred percent effective has always been bogus. And in the CISA, it's saying the averaging about 15% of it gets through. Well, that kind of explains why hackers and malware and ransomware are being so successful. So, you know, that to me was a really good learning point. CISA also said that of the employees who took the bait and simulated phishing attempts, it typically happened within the first 10 minutes. They said 84% of employees that took the bait and interacted with a simulated phishing attack, 84% did so within 10 minutes. So that tells me that if you have an attack, or if you have a real phishing attempt, that your employees are monitoring their email and they're going to respond pretty quickly, which means that you have a very limited time frame to detect prevent and respond to a phishing threat to take it down. Like, you know, we have a product called Fish ER that allows people to report, you know, phishing attacks that got past all their other defenses. But even better, we have as part of the Fish ER product set, we have something called Fish Rip and Fish Flip, which I love. Fish Rip allows an administrator to go, oh, someone just reported this phishing email. I can now quickly rip out any other similar instances across my entire employee base, literally in seconds. And then Fish Flip, which I just love even better, is that you can take a real phishing attempt that someone reported and then defang it, make it innocent, and then send it out to all your employees to see how many would have fallen victim to the real phishing attack. I think the fish ER, fish flip, and fish flip are really important tools. But even with those tools, you or whatever tool you're using, you need to respond quickly. Like you don't want to let somebody report a phishing attack that's real and then have your admin take an hour or two hours to find that in your responsive console because. Within 10 minutes, 84% of your employees are responding or interacting with a simulated phishing attempt. Time is of the essence. You can't wait. If you're only checking your phishing or reported phishing console once an hour, you're going to be in the losing end of that particular response. And then lastly from CISA, one of the stats that I really took to heart there, which is important is that only 13% of employees who got a phishing attempt or simulated phishing attempt, I'm not sure which they were reporting on. I think it meant they were saying simulated phishing attempts, reported the phishing attempt to IT or IT security or help desk or whatever you do, only 13%. So employees need to report all phishing attempts so that IT or, or, or whatever knows, was this an isolated event or is it part of a larger campaign? Many times these phishing attempts are part of a larger campaign, someone trying to sneak in ransomware or something like that. And if IT doesn't get it reported to them, they don't know they have a problem. Matter of fact, I remember I was sitting at a Fortune 10 company a couple of years ago. I was there talking about data-driven defense and they were actually using one of our competitors' products. And 
they had a sustained phishing attack from Russia where these real phishing attempts were sent to thousands of their C-level employees, very targeted, not all employees, just C-level employees, which, you know, in a large organization, you have hundreds and thousands of them. They had thousands of them. These simulated phishing tests were targeted just at the C-level employees, and it had been going on for over an hour before the first person reported it. And by the time IT was made aware of it, was able to confirm that it was this widespread event and respond to it, trying to educate people. They didn't have fish rip where they could just rip it out, but they could at least educate people about that. Hey, be careful. There's this email coming that claims to be this, and this is how you would defeat it. They had already had something like 13 or 14 people respond and actually send their login, their company logon credentials to the Russians. So... You know, all of this, I think, is to say that, you know, if the average company, only 13% of your employees are responding or are reporting a phishing attempt to your company, to your IT, you know, they need to be educated. Part of someone doing appropriate security awareness training is to educate them about the different types of common attacks that they may face and how to recognize them. But the second part of that is then how to respond. Well, if you're at home, maybe that just means deleting it. But if you're at work, it always means you should be reporting it to IT again, because if they're not made aware of this larger problem, you know, your company is at far higher risk. So you need to train employees that here's how you recognize and detect these attacks, and then you should report it to IT security or whatever your mechanism is. We've had a button called the Fish Alert button, which is a free download. You can go to uh, knowbefore.com forward slash resources and see it, the Fish Alert button. But it's free download, works with Outlook and Gmail. But it adds this little icon into their email that they simply highlight the email or open the suspected phishing email and they click on this little fish hook icon and it sends it to a predefined email address, which is hopefully like your help desk or IT or IT security or something. But we know by educating employees that you go, oh, you need to report this, highlight it, click on this button that you have to educate them and you have to make it easy. And with a fish alert button, it actually will delete that email and put it into their trash folder and send a copy to IT where IT can then, you know, handle it and respond. So, you know, I think that there was a lot of really good information in the CISA report that people needed to pay attention to. You know, if you only have 13% of targeted employees that are reporting a phishing attempt, that means you're not doing effective education or you're not giving them the appropriate tools or both. And so I think a lot of different lessons that came out of that, that CISA infographic, it's a good one. And I think a lot of useful information people can use as, you know, evidence to further, you know, tell their senior management, this is what we need to do and why we need to do it. So I was super excited to see the CISA infographic. And they even did things like they recommended using phishing resistant MFA. I was very excited as, as Hillary, as you and I know, probably every other week you and I talk about phishing resistant multi-factor authentication. I love that. They recommended that you have automated updates and I would recommend anybody 
subscribe to CISA's known exploited vulnerability catalog. CISA's known exploited vulnerability catalog, that's a service that will tell you what software and firmware is being exploited by bad guys in the real world. They recommended that everybody enable DMARC, DKIM, and SPF. And if you don't know what those are, those are the world's three most common anti-phishing domain spoofing, anti-domain spoofing standards, DMARC, DKIM, SPF. And I've written about it and I teach a one-hour webinar on it, free webinar. Anyone can download if you're interested in what DMARC, DKIM, and SPF is. But yes, every organization should enable DMARC, DKIM, and SPF. So again, you know, super, super good information, super good recommendations, and, you know, more organizations need to be implementing what CISA's recommending. I suspected you would be happy about the phishing-resistant MFA, so you were, you were right. And then also, I'm glad that you brought up employees not reporting attempted phishing events because a previous job of mine, I would report when I would get phishing emails, and whenever I would report them to IT, they would just ask me, well, did you click on it? And I'd be like, well, no. And they'd be like, so why are you telling us? (laughs) That is not a good response. If you're being more security proactive than your (laughs) IT team, probably not Uh, a good thing. I was like, oh, oh, you don't want to know about it? And they were like, no. Okay. All right. (laughs) I feel like my once a year security training told me that you would want to know about this. (laughs) I hope that they've improved and matured. I would say that there might have been more people in the past. Hopefully today everybody understands the importance. I hope. Yeah, that was pre-2020, pre-pandemic, pre-all this craziness. I don't know, but still, they were pretty good phishing emails too. They almost seemed like they could have been spear phishing me, but oh well, I didn't click on them. So that organization didn't get taken down by my hand. So whatever. Okay. Well, for our second topic, this is a story that broke earlier this week and it it covers how Apple is going to now have to start allowing outside app stores on their devices, you know, specifically iPhones and iPads which is a large part of an overhaul aimed at complying with strict European Union requirements that will go into effect in 2024. And so, Roger, a couple of questions for you. you know, why is this so significant? Why didn't it happen earlier? And do you think this will make their devices more vulnerable? The first question, you know, why is this significant? Why hasn't it happened earlier? You know, for two things, I think, you know, number one, Apple wants to make the most money possible and they're making a 30% cut of anything introduced on their app store. But I also think it's control, both good and bad. So I think it's competitive control. If I force you to go through my app store, my app store is the only thing that can deliver official apps to the iPhone or iPad or whatever environment, then, you know, it helps you make the most revenue and gives you the most control. Your second question, why didn't it happen earlier? You know, Apple wanted to make more money and have more control. And, you know, I think any company, Apple or anybody else would, you know, really be hesitant to give up more revenue and more control. It's not going to be good for Apple. But I think the the second question you said was, you know, will this make Apple devices more vulnerable or not. Yeah, I would say that that is the definitive challenge that Apple, again, releasing control to this other EU stores, third-party stores. You know, one of the good things when you have a single store, whether it's Android or Apple, is that you have one place for all these apps to be submitted And, you know, Apple or Android has a greater chance of keeping the malicious stuff out. Now, 
you know, Apple Store has had all kinds of malicious apps, both just really, truly malware and then apps that don't do what they say they're going to do, that were completely bogus. They've had Trojan horse programs. They've had data leak, privacy leak stuff. It runs the gambit. But with that said, the Apple App Store really tried their hardest not to have that sort of stuff. And when they find out that you violate their terms and conditions and, have, and that you're malicious, they block you. And they block the developers in the future. Apple having control of its own store not only gave it greater revenue opportunity, but really it gave it better control over the security of the applications. And having to have third-party applications or third-party stores does Apple get to still enforce the exact same security controls on apps submitted to the third-party stores, or will the third-party stores be able to create their own security controls? Or even if Apple is able to, and again, I don't, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if Apple can enforce its security controls on the third-party stores, but let's assume that they can. Let's assume that Apple can through you know their agreement with the EU and making allowing third party stores let's assume that apple can enforce its current security controls what is the likelihood that the third party stores will be as good as apple or could a third party store actually be better my sense is you asked the question do you think this will make apple devices more vulnerable my answer my quick answer is probably so and that's because as you release control, you're going to have more opportunities for the same controls, even if they're the same controls, to be applied inconsistently. And, you know, one of the strengths of the Apple ecosystem was the single store allowed them to consistently, or at least as well as you can, I'm sure lots of people go, there, it was not consistent, as well as it could be at scale applied consistently and when lessons were learned like let, let's suppose that in the future somebody learns that there is this additional security control that needs to be applied to apple applications like suppose all of a sudden we find out that there's a particular programming call that leads to a lot of exploitation and so there's a new control that apple says oh you can't have any app that has this particular control or source code call or something in it, literally having more stores just simply means that it's going to take longer for that new control, even if it's allowed to be enforced on the third-party stores, it's just simply going to take longer to apply. And then will it be applied correctly? You know, will each store look at that particular mandate and apply it consistently? Probably not. So I would easily bet that this new requirement that Apple has to support third-party stores, I would easily bet that it is going to allow Apple iPhones to be more vulnerable, more often exploited. You know, and one of the benefits of having an Apple phone versus an Android phone was that Apple had this stronger control. So I think, you know, as these third-party stores come in, you're going to have more applications, more versatility of applications, more types. You would hear things like Apple would only allow like one fart app 
when the Apple App Store came out, there was like 17 different fart apps. And apparently Apple came in and went, hey, this is too many fart apps and we only need one fart app or five fart apps. Well, when you have third party stores, maybe you can have 50 fart apps, you know, so there's going to be versatility and, you know, probably an increase in different types of apps. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be better apps. There could be some better apps that come out of it. But from a security perspective, I think that it is only going to decrease the security of Apple iPhones and, and the Apple ecosystem. And, you know, I don't think you can blame Apple for this. This was the EU, and I'm not necessarily blaming the EU for it. The EU thinks it's wrong or illegal of app to have a monopoly on the applications that can be installed through a store. And so they're following market dictates of trying to put down monopolies, which, you know, if Apple requires that every application go through their Apple iStore. A lot of people, I think, could make the argument that it is some sort of monopoly. But at the same time, you're now forcing Apple to support these third-party stores, which are very likely to result in increased security vulnerabilities and issues. EU is literally telling Apple, you have to do this thing that will likely make their ecosystem less protective. I understand why the EU is doing it. But I really feel for Apple and that it could end up harming their brand in a little bit. And let me say, I I say all this with no details upon how Apple can control the ecosystem that they now have to create. Let me say, at the very least, it's going to challenge Apple to try to keep a wider variety of third-party stores as secure for the applications as when it was completely controlled by Apple. I think that is the definitive challenge for Apple from a security perspective, how do you open up into the third-party ecosystem and keep your applications for your end users as secure as you had it before? You know, when looking at it, it's probably going to be near impossible for that to be the case in the best of circumstances. So, you know, a lot of people probably use an iPhone. Some people will celebrate it. But if you get infected and your iPhone's taken down, you know, by some app from a third-party store, you're probably not going to celebrate it, you know, a year or two from now. It will be interesting to see what happens. Maybe everything I'm saying is overblown. It's not that bad. But I think this is certainly going to be a challenge to the Apple security ecosystem, a challenge at the very least in today's world where there's just malware and hacking rampant. This is not going to improve security. That would be my end ending answer there is that this change is not going to make the Apple ecosystem stronger. Yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see how everything unfolds. And I had forgotten about the fart apps. And I guess now in preparation for the holiday season with my nephews, I should probably download one of those for (laughs) probably would find it really funny. I remember when those were like a huge deal or like all the rage. So thanks for that reminder. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I laughed when I read that a long time ago. And then I remember getting in my brother's uh, Tesla and my friend's Teslas. Every single one of my Tesla friends couldn't wait to play the fart app like you know like (laughs) tesla elon musk allowed one fart app and it was on the console and every person that had a tesla not only wanted to show me it could go from zero to 60 in half a second you know and trying to break my neck but they also would play the fart app during some point of our you know travel and i thought that was interesting who would know that the fart app would become this source of an entertainment and joy so uh, <laughs> yeah, i thought maybe apple was wrong maybe we do need 50 farting apps i don't know 
I haven't experienced the fart app in a Tesla personally, but I know people were making it like their blinker noises and stuff like that, which is pretty ah. funny. <laughs> I, think, I guess you can do that. But. Great. Well, Roger, as always, such a pleasure speaking with you. I had a lot of fun on today's episode, and I'm sure our audience enjoyed it as well. Yes, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for continuing to tune in. Thanks, Roger. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. 